0: Well, let me read uh, our text this morning and you follow along in your copy of God's Word. Matthew 16:13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All right, so we're carrying on uh, here in our series on Matthew, getting in uh, to the kind of the final turn, as it were, in Matthew's gospel. The tension uh, is building in the narrative. We're just three chapters away from the triumphal entry of Jesus, which marks the final week of his life and his... uh, his final confrontation with the religious leaders that will lead to his trial and his crucifixion and death, and then ultimately to his resurrection. So we're, we're, we're moving along in, gospel, in the gospel narrative. And Jesus, as we'll see more fully here in this text, but we've seen it throughout, Jesus has come with an agenda. He's come to establish a mission. And uh, he is not a, just a, a wise teacher or a sage or a guru uh, to come sit upon a mountaintop, have people come to him where he gives proverbial wisdom and sage advice. He didn't come simply to kind of spread a way of life. That's true in one sense, but he came even more fundamentally to launch a movement. He came to establish a mission that his disciples would engage in and then go on out into the world. And that mission that Jesus is In the process of launching, both in this passage, but as we've been seeing, and then that he launches formally at the end of Matthew's gospel, that mission that he launches with his disciples is a mission that extends to you and I as his disciples today, to all those that would ally themselves with him and follow him and claim him as our own. In our text today, I want to walk us through three aspects of the mission— And three kind of distinct uh, truths about the mission of Christ. And these are important for us to remember as we all either collectively as a congregation, as Calvary Memorial Church, or individually in our own unique spheres of influence, embark on this mission. Jesus calls us to work together towards the mission of God. And so that's something that we do collectively, but he also calls us to do it individually in our own unique ways. And so as we think about these three aspects of the mission, I want, I want to help inform our understanding of the mission as we embark upon it. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're glad that you're here. And I think there's a word in here for you as well. As we're going to see in this text, Jesus is going to bring, in particular, Peter, but all of the disciples back to the very beginning of what it means to follow Jesus. He's gonna bring them back to the foundational starting points. So if you're thinking about, do I wanna follow Jesus? Do I wanna join the mission? Jesus' words here return us back to the very foundation and the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And so this is a good conversation to listen in on between Jesus and his disciples as he's getting them sorted on what it means to follow him. So, three truths about the mission of Christ. Here's the first one The mission of Christ is active. The mission of Christ is active, not passive. We see this, I think, in verses 13 through 19. In this text, we have uh, Peter's famous great confession. Jesus has taken the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. This is a a place that was well known in the ancient world for its worship of many gods. So perhaps it's the context there that Jesus prompts Jesus to ask, who do do the people say that the Son of Man is? In any case, whatever the prompt that uh, Jesus had for asking this question, you note the answers that are given here by the disciples. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, might remember that John the Baptist had come as a forerunner of Jesus. He had been uh, killed by Herod. And later on, Herod, hearing of Jesus, thinks that maybe Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead. So some are saying, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Others are saying perhaps he's Elijah. Elijah was the great forerunner of Messiah. And it was prophesied in the Old Testament that in the days of Messiah, Elijah would come and he would prepare the way of the Lord. So maybe, maybe Jesus is the Elijah who is to come. Or others are saying he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the great Jewish prophets who prophesied about the coming of the new covenant in the days of Messiah. Or maybe one of the other prophets, they say. So all the people that they've listed, though, interestingly, are Old Testament figures that, are, that point towards the coming of Messiah. These are forerunners of Messiah. And so if you recall, Jesus has been very... Um, Uh, He's been very circumspect about who he is. He's not revealing his identity to the crowds. So people don't know who he is. The disciples know who he is, not fully, but they know better. But the crowds don't know who he is. And so as he's making his way, as he's making his way teaching and performing miracles, there's a swirl of rumor about who he is, and they don't know. And they, they think that maybe he is someone that's going to usher in the coming of the Christ. But Jesus... Then asks the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter doesn't say you're the forerunner to the Christ. He says you are the Christ. You're the one that Elijah and John the Baptist and Jeremiah and all the prophets have been pointing towards. You're the Christ. But then he goes even a step further and he says, not only are you the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And that was a, even a step up from what the Jewish prophets have revealed. You can find in the Jewish prophets hints and foreshadowings that the Messiah will be more than just a man. But it wasn't spelled out in plain language. And Peter has this revelation from God, Jesus says, that this revelation from God that not only is Jesus the Christ, but, but Jesus is the Son of God. Well, Peter uh, is, is uh, confirmed by, in his statement by Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, you are now, Simon, you are now Petros. And he renames Peter uh, with this language. The word Peter actually means, in the Greek, it means rock or rocky. Uh, you are Petros. And he says, On this Petra, this rock, I will build my church. And so he acknowledges that Peter's statement is a correct statement, that uh, Peter has said what is true about Jesus. And Jesus affirms this by renaming him Rock. There's a bit of a a conversation that happens here. Um, We're not going to get into it this morning, but there's a question between Catholics and Protestants about what this term rock refers to. Protestants say that the this rock is Peter's confession, what Peter has said about Jesus. And so as Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, this is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Catholics, our Catholic brethren believe that it refers to Peter's, not just his confession, although that is, they would affirm that, but that it refers to Peter himself. That is Peter himself that Jesus will build the church upon. And this becomes then the origin of the Roman papacy. But That's a debate for another time. We're not going to solve uh, that here. But all Christians agree that, that this rock at least refers to Peter's confession, his statement that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And ultimately, the hope of the church's mission is that it is founded upon Jesus as the Christ of God and the Son of God. And Jesus, in saying that Peter is right and that upon what Peter has said, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail, he promises victory in a conflict between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. But I want to focus our attention on the way that Jesus frames this conflict. Note what he says here. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail. In the ancient world, a city was made secure by its walls. But of course, in building walls to keep out uh, marauding armies or opposing powers, you had to have gates to get in and out. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of Satan, which has walls around it and has a gate by which it comes in and out and defends itself, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the people of God. But what's noteworthy in this is that the imagery of hell is an image of a stronghold or a fortress, and it is fundamentally a posture of defense. Sometimes I think we read this passage, and if we're not paying enough attention, we we can imagine that the church actually is the fortress with the walls. And when we read that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we imagine Satan's forces coming at the church and we have established a fortress that we then defend. But that is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that the church is on the defensive, fortressed up. He's saying that hell is on the defensive, fortressed up. And when he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, he has in mind the image of the church storming against the fortress of hell and battering down the gates. The mission of Christ is primarily offensive rather than defensive. This, of course, is consistent with the great commission that Jesus is then going to launch his disciples out into. At the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gathers his disciples together, he gives them instructions, and he sends them out into the world. He sends them out, to, as it were, to attack the stronghold of hell with the good news of God's love and the hope of the gospel. Jesus conceives of the world as the stronghold of the enemy. And he intends to send his disciples out to do battle against that stronghold. His mission is an active mission, not a defensive or passive mission. This is super important for us as we engage in the mission of God, the mission of Christ, to understand. We are called to press into enemy-occupied territory with the good news of God's redemptive justice and love. To use a more contemporary illustration, thinking historically of uh, World War II and Adolf Hitler rising to power, taking over all of Europe, and establishing what was known in the days as Fortress Europe, walling himself in, having taken captive all of Europe. And the allies are sent to beat down the gates of Fortress Europe to come in and to deliver and to liberate those that have been taken captive by Hitler's evil forces is very much the picture that Jesus has in mind. Satan has absconded with the world's throne. He's taken the world captive. He has trapped humanity in his thrall. And Jesus is now establishing a beachhead through his disciples by which they will launch towards the gates of the kingdom of hell. And they will batter down the gates and go in and liberate the captives. I think, though, beyond this active uh, vision of the church's mission, we can have uh, an incorrect, uh, two false alternatives uh, to the idea of the church's mission. The first I've already mentioned, but we can get into our own mindset that we are the fortress, that we're the ones that are to gate up and to build the walls. I love gospel music. I grew up listening to gospel music, and perhaps uh, some of you did as well. A lot of good things coming out of gospel music, uh, the old-time gospel, but not all of it is exactly right. And uh, there's one song in particular, you may have heard it, it's called Build an Ark. Has anyone ever heard Build an Ark? So, yeah. And uh, in the song, it basically runs along these lines. If I was Pastor Todd, I would, I would try to sing it for you, but I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but it runs along these lines. Um, Uh, The world is really bad out there. Lots of violence, lots of killing, lots of evil people. So what we're going to do is we're going to take our sons and our daughters, and we're going to build an ark, and we're going to sail away to the open waters. What a terrible song. (laughs) That is not the way that Jesus instructed his disciples. Jesus does not expect us to stare out into the darkness of the world and to gather up our loved ones and run away from it. He expects us to stare out into the darkness of the world and to gather up our loved ones and to go out and minister to it. That's what he's calling us to do. And if we have it in mind that the fundamental posture of the church is to be a fortress, to protect ourselves from the world, we are inverting the exact paradigm that Jesus has given to his disciples. Our job is to go out into the world with the hope of the good news of the gospel because Satan, in his Uh, and his rebellion has taken captive and has darkened the minds of those whom God loves and would call to himself. And we are the agents of Christ to go out with love and good news and justice and hope into that world. So we need to have a fundamental posture where we don't see ourselves as the fortress, getting rid of the world, blocking out the world, but we see ourselves as going out to attack the fortress of hell. So that's one kind of false alternative as we think of ourselves as the fortress. The other would be what I would call uh, the other alternative, would, what I would call would be the, the be beautiful method. The be beautiful method. This is what we're going to do. We're not going to build up a big wall to keep the world out. What we're going to do, we're going to open up the doors on Lake Street, as we often do when it's not 107 degrees. And we're going to open up the doors on Lake Street, and we're going to just stay in here and be beautiful. And we're just going to love each other and look good and have fulfilled lives and be content. And then the people walking by on Lake Street, they'll look in the door and they'll see us just being beautiful. And they'll be like, oh, I want to be a part of that. And they'll come in. Jesus did tell us to be beautiful, right? In one sense, right? He said that the way that the world will know that you are my disciples is if you what? You love each other, right? So we need to be loving each other. And love is beautiful, but Jesus did not expect us to just stay in our little walls, doors open, loving each other. He expects us to take the love of God out into the world. You might have heard this expression, faithful presence. It's a word that's kicked around before, but I was talking with a friend, and we were talking about this very thing, and he said, yes, yeah, sometimes we can adopt the laziest version of faithful presence, right? We're just going to be faithfully present, and hope that people will see how beautiful we look in Christ and then they will be drawn to Christ. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. There's an active aspect to the mission of God. Of course, it's important to remember that as we are going out into the world and Jesus is using kind of this militaristic language of, of war and conflict with, with the gates of hell and the imagery of an attacking army from the church coming to batter down the gates of hell, it's important to remember that, the, as the Apostle Paul has said, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? What we are attacking is not people. We are attacking the forces that have entrapped People and have darkened their minds. Our, our war is not against those whom God has sent us to bring the love of God to. Our war is against the devil and his angels and against the darkness that he has spread throughout the world. And so we come with the primary weapon of love. That's our primary weapon. And our fellow human beings are never the objects of our enmity, but only the objects of our love. So a couple of questions to think about this as we think about the the active aspect of the mission of God, where do you need to be more actively in pursuit of Christ's mission? I think different personality types, we have different ditches that we fall into. Some of us are going to be more prone to be the fortress mentality. We're maybe a bit more pessimistic just in mindset, realist, we would say, right? And we think about the world, and we see all the dangers of it, and we're tempted to want to build up not just walls around our church, but around our own personal lives, right? Is that, is that your temptation? Is that what you would tend to fall into? That's not so much my ditch. My ditch is the other ditch, the, the be beautiful method, right? Where we're going to, we're not going to uh, separate ourselves from the world, but we're not also going to actively engage the world. We're going to just be a kind person. We're going to just live our faith sort of privately and, 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 and winsomely and hope that people will see it and be drawn to Christ, right? What, where do you need to be more active in your pursuit of the mission of God? Are you more tempted to be the bunker mentality, the fortress mentality, more tempted to be the be-beautiful method, How do you need to be more actively in pursuit of Christ's mission? Where are the gates of hell that you bump up against regularly? Fortress Europe back in World War II was a big place, and there were a lot of gates into that fortress. The kingdom of hell is a big kingdom. There are no doubt lots of gates into that realm. What are the gates that you have access to, that the Lord is calling you to to move forward actively against. The Lord doesn't call all of us to all of the gates, but He calls each of us to some of the gates. And so, as you think about what it would look like for you to be more active in your pursuit of God's mission, storming, as it were, the little bits of the fortress that are before you, what are those bits of the fortress? What are the relationships that you have that need to hear the love and the hope of God? What are the opportunities to serve that you see that God has put in front of you? Where do you need to push forward with the love of Christ and the hope of the gospel? So, the mission of Christ— Is an active mission, not a passive mission. That's the first thing in this text. The second is the key to the mission is dependence. The key to the mission is dependence. I think we see this in verses 20 through 23. Peter has just been told here that he's got the right answer, and not only did he have the right answer, but that upon him the entire church and this confession that he's given will be built. So he's feeling pretty good. Not only will Christ have the victory, the church will prevail against the kingdom of hell, but Peter will be right there in the thick of it. But look what happens here. Right on the heels of declaring the certain victory of the mission, Jesus then, as we've talked about in the past, this is another example, verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So he's just given them this rather grand vision of the future, and Peter in particular about Peter's place in it. And then Jesus seems to just cap the whole thing by saying, but don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. And then, confusing it even further, goes on to say that he's going to be resisted when he gets to Jerusalem and ultimately killed. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes who make up the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, are going to going to confront Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill him. I was reading one translation, and uh, the translation took elders, chief priests, and scribes and turned it into lay leaders, senior pastors, and Bible teachers, which was rather sobering. But it is the reality here, right? Because this is who Jesus is being resisted by, is the religious establishment, well, Peter does not get this. He doesn't understand because, Jesus, you were just talking about this great victory that we were going to have. The gates of hell will not prevail against us as we move out into, uh, into your mission. And so I don't get what you're saying. And he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, that's just never a good idea. So that wasn't one of the points that I had in my sermon, but I'll just give you that one for free. It's just don't rebuke Jesus. But, but Peter... Essentially, here uh, it's kind of—he says, "Far be it from you, Lord," is the way that this is translated. The the language and some other translations you might see this a little more clearly. But he's essentially saying, "God forbid," or "the mercy of God prohibit this." But Peter seems to be saying, "Hey, listen, Jesus, you know, I know you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by it all, Jesus. Let me just let me just take you aside here and uh, and help you see things more correctly." Mercy of God, prohibit this, Jesus. May it never be. He's like he's saying, you belong to God. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. God is on your side. There's no way you're going to be crucified. God would not let his Messiah be crucified like that. You've said you're the Christ. You've said the gates of hell are not going to prevail. Let's go back to that kind, of, that kind of mindset, Jesus. That's where we need to stay. Let's stay focused on the positive. I don't know what Peter is thinking. Maybe he's just thinking Jesus is overwhelmed, but whatever the case, Peter rebukes Jesus, trying to bring him back to the glory, right? Get away from that cross talk. A negative talk isn't going to help. Let's get back to the glory talk. Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus returns around and rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, this term Satan that we have here in the text, it literally means adversary. It's the Greek satan or satana and um, It's hard to know exactly whether Jesus is intending to call Peter Satan, as in the archangel that fell that, you know, is taking captive the whole world, or he's simply calling Peter an adversary, uh, not necessarily using a personal name. But in any case, it's not good. You don't want to be referred to as an adversary of Jesus. He says, get behind me, adversary, or get behind me, Satan. So the one who has been given the keys of the kingdom— just five, you know, a few verses earlier, the, the rock upon which the church will be built, now five verses later, is the adversary that is resisting the mission of Christ. Peter, I mean, there's some irony here. He goes from being the rock to literally, Jesus uses the term here, hindrance, but this term hindrance means, it's the Greek term scandalon, which you may have heard that term before, but it's the term for stumbling stone or rock of offense, So interestingly, Peter goes from being the rock upon which the church is built to being the rock that causes the church to stumble, potentially, right? He goes from from the rock, the foundation, to the stumbling stone. Jesus says, you have in mind the things of man rather than the things of God. Peter's vision of the kingdom does not include the defeat of the cross. He simply does not have a category for that. And we really can't fault him for that, I don't think, because none of the disciples understood this all this talk about getting killed, no one had a category for that. Even the disciples on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus had risen from the dead, before they had seen him, a couple of disciples are reflecting on what had happened, and they can't see that Jesus really could have been the Messiah because he was killed. It's not until after the resurrection that it all makes sense to them. So Peter here is on this the, the, the near side of the resurrection. He doesn't understand it. It's not making sense to him. And we can't fault him for not understanding it. But know what Jesus says to Peter. He says, get behind me. Now, I've always tended to think of this expression, get behind me, as a, if you wanted to just translate it another way, it would be, get out of my way. Like, I'm heading to Jerusalem. God has given me a task to do. I'm on my way to do it. That involves the cross. You have come in front of me and are trying to dissuade me from it. And so Peter, get out of my way. Get out of my way. I'm moving forward. Don't be an adversary to me. But as I looked more closely at this text, what I noted is that these are the same words that Jesus first said to Peter in Matthew's gospel. So when Jesus was walking along the shore... In Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 4, he sees Peter and Peter's brother Andrew, and they're out mending the nets. And Jesus, when he sees Peter and Andrew, what is the first thing he says to Peter? First recorded words to Peter were, come and what? Follow me. That is the exact same Greek construction that he says here to Peter in this text. He's not saying, Peter, get out of the way. He's saying, Peter, get back behind me. get back behind me, Peter. He's not saying, go away. He's saying, get back to where you were when I first called you. Get back behind me. He's telling Peter that he needs to get back to where he was at the beginning. Peter's problem was not so much that he didn't understand the mission, because who of us really fully understands all the details and the ins and outs of the mission? We don't understand that. Even now, we don't fully understand it. Peter's problem was that he stopped following Christ because he thought he did understand the mission. It all made sense to him. Jesus said, I'm the Christ, and we're moving forward. We're going to have victory. Peter's like, yep, I'm all in. That makes total sense. So let's get going. And Peter and Jesus says, well, we're going to go this way. And Peter's like, no, 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 that's not where we're going. I mean, you just said we're going this way, so Jesus, let's bring it back around. Let's get back in line and move towards our target. He's stopped following Jesus because he's assumed that he knows where Jesus is going. It all makes sense to him, except he's wrong. I'm thinking about here a little bit of when I go walking with my three-year-old. We take you know, a walk kind of around the neighborhood, and whenever you come to the end of the street, you've got three options, left, right, or straight, And she's right about one-third of the time, right? Because she doesn't really know where we're going. But she always runs out ahead, fully confident that she does know where we're going, right? And Peter here is being much like that. Peter assumes that he knows where Jesus is going. And in one sense, he's not too far off. Jesus is going to get to that place. But the path to get there is not the path that Peter had presumed. Flying high from his great confession, he has a sort of I'll-take-it-from-here kind of attitude, And no matter how much we think we've got it figured out, we never outgrow our need to follow Jesus. We never outgrow our need to follow Jesus. Even when we think it all makes sense to us, he must always be out in front. He must always be the true north that directs our lives. And this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And like Peter in our passage, even devoted followers of Jesus Christ can, I think, get to a place where we presume to know what God is doing. We presume to think we've got it all figured out. And so we let go of his hand and we run on ahead, thinking that it all makes sense. And Jesus would say to us what he said to Peter, get back behind me, you got to get back to following me. Don't get out in front of me. You get out in front of me, you're an adversary. You're a stumbling block. You actually complicate the things that I'm trying to do. Don't think you know better than me, Peter. Get back behind us, back behind me. To follow Jesus means to follow Jesus no matter what. Even if that means down into the shadowed valley of death. Peter couldn't imagine why Jesus would be taking the disciples down into the shadowed valley. There's the prize, full speed ahead. He doesn't understand what's at stake. Peter had no intention of going into the shadowed valley. To follow Jesus means acknowledging our need for him at all times, not only when we feel our need for him, which can be very uh, easy to do. When we find ourselves down in the shadowed valley already, then we very much are willing to follow Jesus out of it. But we're not often willing to follow Jesus down into it. But when we're there and we feel the need of him, it's easy to follow him, but But we need to not just follow him when we feel the need, but even more fundamentally, when we don't think we have a need, that's when we need to be very cautious that we are still following Jesus. It means following Jesus when it doesn't make sense and following Jesus when it does make sense. So where are you tempted like Peter to quit following Jesus? Either because he is leading you into a dark and scary place that you don't want to go, understandably, But Jesus is saying, this is the path I have for you. This is the path that will lead ultimately to resurrection and blessing. Or perhaps you're tempted to not follow Jesus because you think you've got it all figured out. You've come close to the end and you see the finish line and you assume that you know how you're going to get there and so you are tempted to let go of his hand and race forward. Your sense of dependence is uh, evaporating. If you're not yet... A Christian this morning, but are becoming increasingly convinced that you need Jesus to get through life, that as you look at your life and you see all the things that are before you and you say, I don't know that I have it in me to navigate this life, and you know for a fact you don't have it in you to navigate the life to come, then in the words of Jesus to another seeker, you are not far from the kingdom of God, because that's what it means to be a Christian, To be a Christian is to place ourselves in the care of Christ, to depend fully upon him, to say that we don't know, that we don't have it figured out, but that he's got it figured out, that he is the right one, that he is the one that has all the ways before us set to lead us into the place of truth. But if you think you've got it all figured out, thank you very much, you are far from the kingdom of God no matter whether you call yourself a Christian or not. The heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ, is to live with a continual attitude of dependence and reliance upon Jesus. So the mission of Christ is active. The key to the mission is dependence. And then finally, the reward of the mission is sure. Verses 24 through 28, I think we see this. After Jesus rebukes Peter, then Jesus introduces God's counterintuitive path to victory— He says in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, and again, this is the same language that we've seen back in Matthew 4. We've just seen it again here. Jesus is saying, if anyone would come behind me, Peter, get back behind me. Then he says to all the disciples, if anyone's going to get behind me, this is what it looks like. You must take up your cross and follow me. For the one who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The one who wants to save his life counterintuitively must not run out ahead, but must fall in behind Jesus, must be willing to lose his or her life for Jesus' sake, just like Jesus is willing to lose his life for God's sake. Peter and the other disciples have no category for this. They don't understand why Jesus would even be saying this. and they'll, As I mentioned, they're going to continue to be perplexed by this all the way up until the resurrection. And humanly speaking, what Jesus is recommending as a path forward does not make sense. Jesus is asking us to place our bets against all natural reason on the promises of God. He's asking us to bank on the idea that God will make good on our sacrifice. We don't go to the cross and carry our own crosses. We don't follow Jesus to the cross carrying our own crosses, just as a martyr, just as someone who is willing to sacrifice. Jesus is saying, if you follow me to the cross, just as God will raise me from the dead, he will raise you from the dead. If you let go of this life and the material things and you don't seek after it and try to find your hope in it, God is good for it. He will make it up to you in the end. Jesus offers two reasons for doing this, I think. The first uh, we see here in verse Uh, 26. What will it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying, listen, there's a futility to this life. No matter how much money you amass, no matter how wonderful your family is, no matter the name that you make for yourself, no matter the safety that you put around you, whatever it is that you accomplish in this life, all of it is washed away. All of it returns back to the dust, ashes to ashes dust to dust. There is nothing in this life that you can do, that you can build up for yourself, that can withstand the end. And so there's a futility to this life, trying to find your hope here in this life. Jesus would say, don't do it. But then he would say this, there is a day coming when Jesus will make good on his promise. Right after talking about the futility of this life, he then says in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Sometimes we can think of the judgment, and not uh, unrightly, but we can think of the judgment in kind of dark and austere terms, a final day of reckoning. But Jesus, I think, introduces the judgment here in this passage as, a, as, a, as an anchor of hope. Jesus is essentially saying, listen. I want you to die. I want you to give up the things of this world. I want you to take up your cross. I want you to not pursue the things that this world pursues. That's a risk. That's a risk because if I don't make good of my promise, all you've done is died. All you've done is sacrificed. All you've done is let go. But I'm going to make good of my promise. I'm going to come again in glory with my Father's angels, and I will pay you back tenfold, a hundredfold for everything that you've given up. Just as Jesus trusting in his heavenly father, went to the cross, willing to let go of his claim upon the kingdoms of this world, went into the grave, crucified wrongly, and God vindicated him, raised him from the dead, and has seated him above every name that is given, not only in this earth, but in heaven, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Jesus is saying, I am the example of what it means to die in faith that God will vindicate you. And so you've got to follow me. you got to follow me. Take up your cross. i got my own cross. You don't have to carry my cross. you got to carry your cross. You take up your cross in whatever way the Heavenly Father is calling you. you got to follow me in my path. It's going to be sacrifice. It's going to be loss. It's going to be letting go of the things of this world. But I will make it up to you. I will come again. And when I come again, I'll make sure that your sacrifice was not in vain. I'll make sure that you have not given up and only lost, but that you will have given up and made, as it were, a deposit into my investment that will reap eternal dividends. I will make sure you get what's coming to you. That is the good news of the judgment. The judgment is God's way of vindicating our faith in him. Just as Jesus went to the cross against all human wisdom, banking on God to vindicate him, so too we take up our own crosses against all human wisdom, banking on God to make good on his promise. Listen, if we go through this life, and we don't, as it were, place bets on God making good, but go through life hedging our bets, right? Go through life hedging our bets. We don't want to have to depend upon God to make it up to us in the end. So we, we throw some things towards God here and some things towards God here, but we pretty much got it figured out. That's not Jesus' way. We need to be hung out to dry, if God doesn't come through in the end. That's how we know that we're living in the way that he wants us to live. Because if God doesn't come through, we are, as the Apostle Paul said, of all men most despised. Because we've given up everything for nothing. But we're counting on the resurrection. We're counting on the Lord's return. We're counting on him coming back and making it up to us. And that's the, that is the motivation for the life of faith. Because faith isn't just believing truths about God. It's not just believing facts about Jesus. Faith is being willing to put all in our chips on Jesus being right, on Jesus being who he said he was, on coming back and rewarding us for our sacrifice and our efforts and our willingness to die. If we would reign with Jesus, we must follow his counterintuitive path to victory. Jesus is both lion who reigns, that is true. He's also the lamb that was slain. These things almost oxymoronically going together in ways that didn't make sense until Jesus' resurrection. He's the lion that reigns only because he was willing first to be the lamb that was slain. So he charts for us our course of following down into death with the belief that he will vindicate us through our faith in him. We will have the victory, not a victory secured by human wisdom or might, but a victory through defeat, a victory of faith, a victory that comes from turning the other cheek, a victory that comes through blessing those who curse us, from going the extra mile, a victory of dying to ourselves and letting go of our lives, all for Jesus' sake all in faith that God is good for it. So where are you tempted to hedge your bets? Where are you tempted to pursue natural means to victory? Maybe you work in an environment where it's pretty cutthroat culture and Jesus is all this turn the other cheek stuff and putting others first and love just doesn't work in your environment, you think. But why don't you take Jesus up on it? Because yeah, humanly speaking, it doesn't work. But that's why you have God. Because God's the one that has to make that work. Or perhaps you're in relationships and you think about the way that you relate to people. And you're always wanting to make sure that you get your own first. You're always looking about what's good for you. And and this idea of putting others first, it's scary because you don't know if it's going to be reciprocated. You always want to make sure to get your own. But But what would it look like to live a life of faith, to follow Jesus down into the cross, as it were, in your relationships, to put others first, to think about others, to not be worried about getting in return because you believe that God is going to give you everything that you need in return, whether in this life or the life to come or both. Perhaps in your family or your marriage, you hedge your bets and you hold back because you don't want to extend love because you're afraid you might not be loved in return. You might not be. But that's why God's love is there. It's sufficient for all the unrequited love that we give out, whether it's in our marriage, our family, or beyond. So the mission of Christ is active. The key to the mission is dependence. And the reward of the mission is sure. We can bank on it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us uh, such hope in Christ. We acknowledge that if you had not sent him, we would be forever in darkness, wandering our way, mucking it up, trying to do our best, but not being able to figure it out. We would be chasing after human means to try to accomplish human victories that in the end would be shallow and would slip through our grasps at the end of our lives. Thank you for giving Jesus to walk the path ahead of us, to show us what it means to trust you, to trust you even with his death. God, you don't ask all of us to bear such a heavy cross, but you ask us to bear our own crosses, and so I pray that in the crosses you ask us to bear for Jesus' sake, that we would bear them in faith, not faithlessly pursuing the patterns of this world to try to deal with the pain of our crosses, but trusting you, believing that you will vindicate us in your time and your way. We look forward, Lord, to the day of resurrection, we pray that Christ would come to make all things new. We thank you that we have this hope in him that frees us up to live in all the ways that you have called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.